0: So today, we return to the Gospel of Luke, after about a five-month break. We do plan to finish it, yes, finally, in about four months, by the end of May. I can't even remember when we started this Gospel, but it's rich and it's deep, isn't it? So we're going to finish it up by the the month of May, the end of May. And we'll pick up today where we left off, at the beginning of chapter 21. Uh, Today's text is about giving. Interesting timing for us, isn't it, in a new year with a new church budget that we discussed at our congregational meeting last Sunday. So our passage today in the Gospel of Luke uh, gives us a picture of amazing generosity in the context of abject poverty. The title of the message is Becoming a Generous Giver, Becoming a Generous Giver, Luke 21, and we'll read today just the first four verses. Follow along as I read. This is the word of God. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasurer. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Philip Yancey, one of the foremost Christian writers of our time, wrote once about his own attitude toward money, and I found it to be strikingly similar to my own, and I could really relate to it. This is what he wrote. Many Christians have one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some, it involves sexual identity. For others, it's a permanent battle against doubt. The issue that haunts me is money. It hangs over me. It keeps me off balance, restless, uncomfortable, nervous. I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I want to sell all that I own and join a Christian commune and live out my days in intentional poverty. At other times, I want to rid myself of guilt and enjoy the fruit of our nation's prosperity. I want you to hear especially his next two sentences. Listen to what he writes. Mostly, I wish that I did not have to think about money at all, but I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. I I read that to you because those two sentences, they, they really, they typify me in my own spiritual journey, and I suspect uh, more than a few of you as well. I think for every one of us who is serious about being a follower of the Lord, there has to be what I'll call an, an economic component. Every person, every family has an economic c- component. Every church has an economic component, too. Fortunately, uh, Unfortunately, in the past, I think it's often been reduced to discussions about budgets deficits, and maybe fundraising. And we've kind of considered the notion of money to be a bit of a dirty subject. Let's just not talk about it. But I think something is changing in the church across America. And we're beginning to realize that money is not a dirty subject at all. If I'm a true follower of Jesus Christ, if I'm part of this church community, if I say, these are my people, and I intend to live my Christian life in partnership with them. Well, then we begin to look at money differently. We see it as part of our worship. We see it as part of our community. We see it as part of our commitment. We see it as part of our Christian growth. I don't know about you, but that is light years away from the way many of us were taught as as Christians years ago. This economic component It's not about business. It's about discipleship. It's about discipleship. It's one way of measuring the closeness I have in my walk with Jesus and with his people. So this is a fairly new idea in many parts of the American church. It's a great idea. It's a biblical idea. And it may be on the cutting edge of the whole revolution that is underway in the 21st century in the way Christians carry themselves in this new sort of national and global culture. Our people, followers of Christ, should be known for their generosity, by their extravagant giving. That should really become our brand in the coming years. And if that does happen, it's not something that's brand new. If you go back to the first three centuries of the Christian movement, Uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven and the apostles eventually died and left this Christian movement flourishing across the Roman Empire. And if you look at what the Christian movement was like during that time, you may be startled to learn that the mark of the Christian movement that most impressed the people of that time was not the preaching. Now, I'm a preacher, so that's a little bit disappointing to me. But in the first three centuries, the Christian movement was known for its generosity. Just as McDonald's has the golden arches, just as Nike has the swoosh, just as Apple has the apple with the bite taken out of it, so the brand of Christians for the first three centuries was that they were always what you might call on the give. That here they they are. Here I am, Lord. Here I am available. They were always on the give. There was a man in the second century, we're going to do a little history here, so so hang with me now. There was a man in the second century by the name of Dionysius who wrote about common life among people in the pagan culture of that time. In those days, in the Roman Empire, every town, every village, every city faced a major calamity on average about once every dozen years. By calamity, I mean an earthquake, a fire, a plague, or a military conquest. Something every dozen years. Because, you know, cities in those days were constructed most often with flammable and flimsy materials. A fire could sweep across the whole city and just completely wipe it out. Or an earthquake could bring all the buildings tumbling down. There was no medicine if a plague struck. No medicine. Or a conquering army could come marching right through. And what did the pagan culture do when those catastrophes hit? Dionysius wrote this. The pagans thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept at a distance even from their dearest friends. They cast the sufferers half dead into the ditches and left them unburied. If you read the history of the Peloponnesian Wars, written about in the second or third century B.C., you will find vivid descriptions of how people in those days ran. They ran whenever there was danger. They didn't care about their children. They didn't care about their aging parents. They didn't care about their neighbors. They just ran. They ran to save themselves. That was one of the Core notions, maybe unspoken, but a core notion of a pagan view of life. Run. Save yourself. Now let me read you something from a Christian leader in the third century. His name is Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius writes this. The Christians were the only people who amidst such terrible ills showed feeling and humanity to their fellows "...by their actions. Day by day, some would busy themselves with attending the dead and burying them. Others gathered in one spot, all who were afflicted by hunger, throughout the whole city, and gave bread to all. When this became known, he goes on, the people, and by this he means the pagan population, glorified the Christian God, and convinced by the very facts confessed that the Christians alone were truly pious and religious. So even if you find history boring, it's not your favorite subject, at the core of those words is a powerful truth. The only people in those ancient days who genuinely stood up for what they believed in and acted out of charity and love and generosity with no thought of their own lives were the Christians. That's who they were. That was their calling. That was their brand. For three centuries, the Christian movement expanded in one of the most dramatic periods of growth in church history. The countries of the Mediterranean world became filled with communities of believers, and the secret to all of that was that they were known for their generosity, that they would care for others. Now think about the times in which we live, Think about our nation, our world. The world does not know what to do with all the immigrants, those cast out, foreigners, widows, orphans. But these have been on the heart of God from the very beginning of his revelation to us. He was always telling his people, take in the stranger. Take in the sojourner. Take in the one cast out. This is... This has always been part of our call, is it not? To open our hearts, lives, homes to those who do not have a home. We were praying about this uh, this morning. We just all of a sudden started praying about it in the little circle I was in in the concert of prayer. and It just brought to mind how Moses prayed, Lord, you have been our home in all generations. We have a home because the Lord, is our home in all generations, our dwelling place. And so since we have a home, we, we have a home to invite others into. So how did this, all this generosity happen in the first place? And how has it been largely forgotten? I would suggest to you, I could be wrong, but I think that across the world today, the Christian movement, the church, is not well known for its generosity. It's known for other things, but not necessarily for its generosity. How did it get to be that way? And how can we get it back? If that's our heritage, how do we get it back? You have to start with Jesus. It always starts with Jesus. You have to look at the three years that we know about his public life and ministry upon the earth, and the 12 disciples that he trained, plus a few more beyond that, And you have to look at what he started with when he recruited those disciples. What did he start with? They were basically selfish men, just like everyone else. They were no different. They were basically selfish men, just like me, just like you, who were asking in one way or another, well, what's in this for me? That's the human heart, fallen and broken. What's in this for me? Those first disciples, they were people who found it easy to turn children, old people, crippled people, sick people away from Jesus. Go away. That's what they knew how to do. They were people who were romanced by where the money was. They were seduced by where the power was. But Jesus was just the opposite. He said one day to some would-be disciples... You have to understand that the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Follow me? You know what you're getting into? For most of his public life, Jesus only had one piece of clothing to wear. As Amy Carmichael said about a hundred years ago, we Christians follow a stripped and crucified Savior. We Christians follow a stripped and crucified Savior. Have we forgotten that? Jesus chose poverty. He did not choose wealth and comfort. Although he could have, he did not. And over three years, he burned that message of generosity into his disciples. So that when we see these same apostles three, four, five years later in the book of Acts... They're totally different from the day they met the Lord. Something, somebody, the Spirit of God transformed them from being selfish, grudging givers to being generous givers. How did Jesus do that? Well, first of all, he modeled it. He he lived it. It was his life. Second, he gave instruction about it so that we could see it, And hear it. He taught about it. And the Bible has many wonderful places of teaching where Jesus talks about generosity. Uh, The stories he told have this economic component in them, both on the positive side and the negative side. In the Gospels, we find stories about a rich young ruler, a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus, the generous good Samaritan, and in our text today, a poor but generous widow. In the text we read today, Jesus and his disciples are outside the temple in Jerusalem. And Luke writes in verse 1, As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now, historians say that the collection containers of the temple treasury uh, were like uh, big boxes with upside-down French horns with the big bell of the horn facing upwards, like a big funnel. So it looked something like this, if you look at the screen. Big boxes with these big funnels on top, into which you would drop your money. These rich Pharisees would come to the containers, and they would put in their offering. And they would make their large offerings into as many coins as possible. We prefer bills, don't we? We don't want to carry around pockets full of coins, but they preferred coins. Yeah, let's change this into as many coins as possible, so that when they emptied their sacks of coins into the top of those funnels, those French horn-like openings, man, it made a lot of noise clattering down into the box. So if you could make more noise than the next guy, you would be more admired. You were said and thought to be more religious, more spiritual, more faithful. So Jesus watched these people making all this noise. You have to imagine the noise, the clattering of the coins. And they were giving their money according to the strict standard of what God's law said they had to give, except not really. Because none of them really wanted to give like that, and they were always looking and finding all kinds of loopholes you know, to give less wherever possible. So they're trying to deal with the minimums they had to give. So the story goes on. Verse 2, Jesus also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I mean, this tiny event in an ordinary life, Jesus stretches it to its farthest extreme to make a very important kingdom point. Amidst these men trying to make a statement with all their noisy coins, comes this woman, making not a sound. Now, when Jesus says a widow, he's putting his finger on the most invisible, the most powerless the person you most did not want to be in that society. In those days, when you wanted to talk about the poorest of the poor, you talked about the widow and the orphan. They were the most vulnerable. They had no resources and no rights. So in this moment, Jesus is putting the camera's eye first upon the wealthy, the powerful, the impressive people, the movers and shakers. And then in contrast... He's putting his eye upon this poor widow and nobody, invisible to everybody else. They didn't even see her there. But Jesus saw her. I imagine the disciples were milling around, looking at this and that, you know, filled with excitement and the energy of this crowded temple area. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, come over here for a minute, I want you to see something. So the disciples gather around, what's going on? And Jesus says, Watch what that woman does. Just watch that woman. No one else noticed her. but She came along and dropped in two tiny coins. They probably went plink, plink. You couldn't even hear them. Worth less than a penny in our currency today. And then Jesus says the most incredible thing. She has given more than anybody else because she put in everything she had. Those other guys gave out of their wealth. They carefully calculated what they would have left over, what they could afford to give, so that they would not have to diminish their lifestyle. But she started from the other end. She didn't start there. She started from the other end, and she gave everything. She gave what she had. So when Jesus said, She gave everything she had. I think he's electrified about this thing. Why? Because he had come to give everything he had. That was his mission. I think Jesus sees himself in this widow. She inspires him in his own mission of salvation. There's a strong sense in which Jesus Christ and this widow are the same. They share in common. This practice of amazing generosity, of emptying themselves of everything they have. They gave everything they had. That's what she did. And that's what Jesus is about to do. As we move our way toward the end of the Gospel of Luke, we'll see it. This is what Jesus is about to do. He had come to give everything he had. And this is the heart of the Gospel, this passage is not a little filler in the Gospel of Luke. This is the heart of the Gospel. And it all starts with God. It, it starts with God the Father giving it all. What did the Father give? For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave. Not loaned. Gave. His one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's giving. That's giving. Romans 8, 32. He, that is God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave, gave him up for us all. That's giving. That's what the Father does. And so Jesus comes. And what does he do? He gives it all. He doesn't live for himself. He doesn't have people wait on him, serve him. No, he's the chief servant of all. And he lays down his life in righteousness, as a sacrifice in the place of sinners like us. He goes to a cross that we deserve, that we earned. I earned it. I earned it by my sin. He went in my place. And what did he do at that cross? He gave it all. His blood, his body, his breath, his life, his death. His all. He gave it all. And he gave his righteousness, too, that I might be covered with that, and you might be covered with that. He gave it all. He gave everything he had. And so this explains who we are. This is our God. We serve and know and follow a God who gives it all, or we would not be able to follow him. So here we are. We're... We're to put our feet in his footsteps and follow him. We have a a kinship with him. We're called to give ourselves away for the glory of God. So when I think about generous giving, there's so much that could be said. I think about three things. What makes giving generous giving? When we think about giving it all, Well, I think, first of all, that generous giving is done voluntarily. Uh, No one begged any of the firefighters or policemen to go to Ground Zero when 9-11 happened. They went there voluntarily. Uh, They went there because a mission absorbed them. It just consumed them. Jesus came voluntarily. He was absorbed and consumed by a mission of salvation. Because you and I were lost. And we would never find our way home. So what is it that absorbs you? What is it that consumes you? Generous giving, it's not an obligation. No one has to persuade you or twist your arm. No one has to plead with you and appeal to your guilt or your emotions. You just, how can we put this? You just know it's right. In your heart of hearts to be a generous giver as a follower of the one who freely gave it all for you. Secondly, I think generous giving is something that is done sacrificially, as Jesus gave himself sacrificially. Not just giving out of your excess so that you don't really feel it and nothing really changes in your life. No, instead, you end up limiting your lifestyle so that you actually can do more with your money than if you had kept it in your own hands. Have you experienced that in giving? Generous giving is about being redemptive. Jesus giving of himself was redemptive. So I, as his follower, I want to use part of what God has given to me uh, to help change the lives of others for good, for his glory. Thirdly, I think generous giving happens when I give systematically. When I give systematically out of the financial resources, whatever they are, with which God has blessed me. So, let's get practical about this for a few minutes. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to sit down over the next week or so. And um, let's do some applications. Start putting together a very simple financial plan. Well, that sounds scary the minute it comes out of my mouth, doesn't it? (laughs) Or review the one you already have. A, A very simple plan that can serve you and honor the Lord with your money for the rest of your life. It's actually simpler to do than you may think. So how do you do that? Some practical suggestions. These are not commandments, by the way. They're merely suggestions. These are simple suggestions that may help you as they have helped me over the course of my life. So I just I offer them humbly to you for your consideration. I have a good friend who says, you know, chew on the meat and spit out the bones. So if you see some things here that seem like bones to you, just spit them out, but, but do chew on the meat, right? So, first... Reflect on your history with money. That's going to be fun. (laughs) Reflect on your history with money. Come to terms with the history of money in your life. If you grew up in a relatively poor home, you may be afraid of being broke. And so you're kind of scared to be generous because you want to be sure you have enough for yourself or for your family. That's understandable. Or maybe you grew up with enough money or more than enough money... And you don't want to lose a certain lifestyle to which you are accustomed. It's hard to think about letting that change. You may look at your money and realize deep down that you're, you're just a little bit ashamed of money. So you don't know what you will find if you've never done this. If you've never reflected on your history with money, believe me, you have a history with money. We all do. And you may discover that you have fear that you've never dealt with or greed. Or shame that's associated with money in your personal or family history. So it helps to take an honest look at at what's really there. Spend some time looking back into your life. What's the story of money in your life, in your family? And where do corrections need to be made? Second, get out of debt. Get out of debt. Determine to remove yourself completely from debt. It may take you years to reverse that financial stream, but that's okay. It can be done, and it's worth it. You can finally get to the point of being able to say, with the possible exception of a house mortgage, we don't owe anybody anything except to love them. So, for example, stop buying things that you can't pay for within 30 days. Now, that will mean at times you'll go without something, For a while, maybe a long while, but it won't kill you. It won't. As a result, you will never have to go to bed worried about money again. That's where that takes you. Third, these are suggestions. Don't go over the 80% mark. What do I mean by that? Don't go over the 80% mark. I mean decide that you will live underneath the 80% mark of your income. So, whatever your income is, figure that out. Take out your calculator. You probably have one, like I do, on your phone. Very handy. And take that amount, your income, and multiply it by .8. .8. All right? 0.8. And then don't spend over that amount. Just don't go over that amount. Discipline yourself. Lord, help me to not go over that amount. Why is that important? Well, that will... That builds a discipline in your life where you are creating some space. It, it will give you some room to grow generosity in your life. Generosity has to be grown. It needs space in order to grow. Fourth, save for future service in your retirement. This is obviously important to me in the next chapter that Shelley and I are, you know, will soon be entering in our lives. But Preparing for this is something you have to start a lot earlier in your life. So don't wait, or it'll be too late when you get there. Put some money away each month to accumulate over time, so that when you stop working, hopefully all of us at some point will be able to stop working that full-time job, right? So that when you stop working, you'll be able to obey God's call to serve Him in different ways in that retirement chapter of your life without worrying and fretting and fussing about money. You'll have freedom to serve him as you are able. Fifth and finally, build up to a tithe and then build on a tithe. Build up to a tithe and then build on a tithe. So, start giving. You're probably giving already. Praise God for that. Keep giving. But... Wherever you are, just kind of start. Hit a reboot, a refresh button, and start. Start now. Start wherever you are. And start building up to a tithe. And that's 10% of your income, if you're not there yet. Determine to start every year's giving with a little bit more than you gave last year. That's something that we have tried to do every year. So that each year, you're just building incrementally, little by little, a step-by-step, above where you were. You don't have to go from zero to 60 in one year. You can't. But build up toward that biblical tithe. And then when you reach that 10% mark, strap in, keep going. Keep going. Keep growing. This is really about growing in generosity. I hope none of us gets to the point where we say, I am as generous as I need to be. I am as generous as I need to be. No need for any more growth in generosity in my life. God help those around us if we stop growing in generosity. Because the needs will continue. And so our generosity needs to be stretched, needs to grow. So keep growing in your giving. Build on top of that tithe as you're able. Give more as God blesses you more. Just become a generous A plan like that will make all the difference in the world in the quality of your life, in the quality of your work, in the quality of your marriage, in the quality of your following Jesus, and in the quality of your faith. It's going to change everything, and it will give you a life that you're actually going to want to live, and it's a life that you'll want to give away. So that's my concluding point for you today. In the days ahead, If you and your spouse or you and some close friends, you and your small group, uh, could work hard on the notion of just a very simple financial plan, then the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of God may use this little text in Luke's gospel to take the model and the idea of the poor widow's generosity and make you part of the cutting edge of advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of God where you live and where you work. I want you to remember what we said at the beginning, what Philip Yancey said. Mostly, I wish I did not have to think about money at all, but I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. We need to be able to say that honestly about ourselves. So may God bless you as you think honestly about money, and the future, and the call of God on your life. And as you make your way step by step, following Jesus, you're, you're heading in the direction of what he regards, what he describes as generous giving. Amen? Amen. I've asked Valerie Rich if she would be with us today. Valerie is, is here somewhere. There you are. Valerie, thank you. Uh, Please come on up at this time. Valerie is going to be doing a worship dance to help us as we respond uh, to the Lord's call to a life of generous giving. So so let's move with her into the heart of God on this matter. Let's all prayerfully be doing some business with God about our hearts and our money and His glory. So I invite you to, to listen watch, pray, worship, uh, make decisions to take actions as God leads you. So this song is called I Give Myself a